Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 120 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Parenting Line, an interview with Dorothy Leland. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, when I had my scrape with Line, what I did is what most old people do. I went on to Amazon. I downloaded all the books or purchased all the books on Lyme disease and read them all. And one of my favorite authors was Dorothy uh, Leland. She co-authored a book entitled When Your Child Has Lyme Disease, A Parent Survival Guide, and I really enjoyed that book. And Rich, Dorothy has really touched my life personally as the co-founder of LymeDisease.org. I wish I knew this, resor- this resource was available to me when I first got diagnosed, but once I found it a few years in, it was really a game changer for me. LymeDisease.org provides such great research information, tools to help you discover alternative treatments for Lyme disease, and also gives you a place to find other people in the Lyme community that you can relate with and talk to about the Lyme experience. Not only that, Dorothy is involved in the My Lyme Data Project, which is a patient registry and research platform launched by LymeDisease.org. Using big data research tools, it allows patients like me to privately pool my information about my Lyme experience and share with others to help them. So Matt, I am really excited to introduce Dorothy Leland to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Dorothy Leland, and welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, we're really blessed to have you. So Dorothy, can you share with us uh, where you live? Uh, I live in Davis, California, which is Northern California near Sacramento. All right, so as, uh, as uh, New Yorkers, we always call you folks over in California on the left coast. So welcome, uh, welcome left coast to the uh, Tick Bootcamp podcast. And uh, Dorothy, tell us about your background. Uh, do you, you mean my personal background? Do you mean yeah, my tell background? Us, tell us, are, are you married? Do you have any children? Uh, what's your oh, educational uh, background? Talk, talk to us about those kinds of things. Okay. Well, I was a journalist um, for a number of years. I, I did a variety of things uh, that were um, writing and media, and uh, I wrote children's books. And uh, I, I just, and I was married and I had two kids. And I had just written um, my second children's novel. Uh, and I suddenly, my my daughter, who was 13 at the time, became suddenly disabled overnight. And uh, I, that was really a plot point for my life that, that changed things. So Dorothy, you're living the dream, right? You're writing, you're writing children's books, you have a couple of beautiful kids, uh, and your daughter, Rachel, who at the time was uh, an athletic young child uh, comes down with uh, a series of illnesses. So can you share with us um, how Rachel was doing before she started to show uh, her symptoms of her tick disease and how that changed? Well, um, she, what we, you know, we, li- we live in a town where a lot of kids play soccer <laughs> and she played soccer and she was, you know, she was very good. She was very active. She was, you know, she was good in school. She was, I was a Girl Scout leader. We did things with a Girl Scout troop. And all of a sudden she fell and injured herself in a, in a soccer game. Uh, she, she hurt her wrist, but nobody, you know, that happens when kids play soccer. And she, we put ice on it and she took ibuprofen and it just, you know, just seemed like that was one of those things and you get, you know, you get, you get by, you continue with life, except for us, that was the beginning of a great unraveling. And within a few weeks, she was in so much pain, she needed a wheelchair, she couldn't walk, she was, everything hurt too much. And, and 
people would say, well, why is your daughter in a wheelchair? Well, she hurt her wrist. <laughs> I mean, it seemed like kind of a strange thing to say. But it, it, looking back on it, it appeared that whatever that original injury was seemed to set off uh, like a body-wide pain response. And it wasn't, pain was the thing she noticed the most, but there were all kinds of other weird symptoms that happened with it. And so we went to the doctor and they said, um, you know, they x-rayed the wrist, nothing wrong with the wrist. Oh, you'll get over it. Well, this hurts, the knee hurts, the this hurts, the, the neck hurts. And it just, it, we were getting in to see specialists and they would take us seriously at first and they would test whatever, you know, they give tests for juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. They would give tests for these other things. And then the tests would come back and say, normal, perfectly fine, nothing wrong with her. And then you start having this, you know, what do you mean there's nothing wrong with my kids in total, you know, total misery and, and freaking out. We were all freaking out. And we would, and then they'd say, well, we'll refer to you as a specialist. And then you have to wait six weeks to see the specialist. And, you know, it goes on and on and on. And she was deteriorating before our eyes. And we did get into specialists. We did get into a um, prominent children's hospital that I'm not going to mention by name. And they, they took us and took her and, and I thought, well, they're going to get to the bottom of this. They're just going to test her for everything, you know, six ways from Sunday. And, you know, we'll get this, we'll get this straightened out. And now what they decided was, is that actually there wasn't anything wrong with her and that she was faking it. And that actually it was because I was an over-engaged mother and she was, it was just sort of going down this whole psychological rabbit hole. And it's not that, I mean, hey, when this happens to you, you do have psychological problems and your mother has psychological problems. But the fact is, is that, you know, we didn't get where we needed to get. And then finally, they just sent us home and said, you know, just, you know, go to the, go to the therapist. You'll be fine. I can tell that um, you are an engaged parent. Uh, your children are active in sports. Your um, children are active in scouting. So you were, you were a, um, in fact, you were accused of being an overly active mother, uh, maybe a, a helicopter mom, they might have called you at that time. And I'm wondering, as an active mom, what you knew about ticks and what you knew about Lyme disease at the time that your daughter first started to show her symptoms of what you now know to be her tick disease. Well, that's easy. That's a big fat zero in terms of what I, except for I started Google, you know, Googling things. And I was talking to a neighbor and they, you know, my daughter was in a wheelchair. They knew we were having issues. And the neighbor said, you know, asked me, you know, what's the latest about Rachel? And, uh, you know, I told him what I knew and he said, well, you know, have you ever thought about Lyme disease? Because somebody that we know was in a similar situation and it turned out that there was Lyme disease, you know, it was Lyme disease. And I said, I don't know. And I went right in and I started Googling it and I called the doctor's office and, and asked for tests. And the bottom line was we were told that it couldn't be Lyme disease because we lived in Davis and there's no Lyme disease in Davis. Well, let's talk about and that for a second. I so said, 
So was your family just sort of isolated in the community where you lived? And did you ever leave that community? Well, and that's what I said. That's what I said to the guy. I said, we don't spend all our time in Davis. You know, we've traveled. I said, I was a Girl Scout leader. We went camping and, uh, you know, hiking. Lots of places that, uh, that I now know have ticks. But see, one of the things in California, and it's not just California, but California is a big one is that they just say, oh, I mean, even the CDC, you know, says, oh, it, you know, there's, you don't have to worry about ticks in California. There's ticks, there, there are ticks. Actually, I have to say, I had never seen a tick before. I was not aware of them. But um, it's, but it, there was not a consciousness of it. So but, Dorothy, let's stay with that for a second. So, so we're now talking about 2005. And yes. you're clearly a very educated woman. Uh, you are a journalist who would, who would be well aware of um, world events. Uh, you're a scout leader, you're a mom, yet you didn't have any information that you could transfer to your children that would allow them to be safe from ticks and Lyme disease, correct? Correct, absolutely correct. And uh, I just, it, it, it's, that is one of the reasons that I ultimately got in, which I know we're, I'm getting ahead of the story, but that's in, eventually because I got involved in doing the things that I got doing, because what do you mean nobody knows about this? So, and, so but Dorothy, let's explore another piece of your story. And that is you're an educated person of means who has health insurance and the capacity to bring your daughter to some of the top doctors in the state of California, including a children's hospital that shall remain nameless, <laughs> yet no one diagnosed your daughter with Lyme disease, but one of your neighbors through what we call bro science did properly <laughs> diagnose her very early on in this process. Yeah, well, or, 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 or pushed, pushed, you know, pointed us in a direction you know, pointed us in a direction that nobody else was doing, you know. That was correct, I, though. I, I was going to say, when, when, when we were at this, you know, famous children's hospital, uh, I had been doing, at the time, we didn't even have, like, now you could have your laptop or something while you were there in the waiting room. You know, that didn't exist. But there was one computer that was available for families to use, like in sort of a little library or something in the hospital. And so when my daughter was was sleeping or whatever, I would go down there and I would, you know, be Googling stuff about, you know, Lyme disease and whatever. And, and I asked, because uh, I was coming up with this once my neighbor mentioned it. Uh, and, and, I, and I do have to say that at one point we insisted and they gave us a test that I now know is lousy. And they said, oh, no, she doesn't have it. You know, she's negative on the test. And when I even asked them, you know, like more and for more information about the test, it was like, oh, well, you know, they didn't know. They didn't know anything about the test. They just knew it was negative. And so <laughs> anyway, um, that so so I was it was actually written in my uh, so I was asking these doctors at, at the hospital about, you know, Lyme disease and these things that I was learning. And it, when you leave the hospital, they write up a report, becomes part of your records. Many people don't get it. Maybe now you can get it online, but there you had to, if you wanted a copy of it, you had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope someplace and pay something. And I got a copy of the report afterwards and it was written that the, that the mother had an unrealistic idea that her daughter had Lyme disease. That, that was one of the things that they wrote in, 
there because I had asked about it. I mean, if I thought she had polio and I said, you know, is there any possibility she could have polio? Would they have written that in there that I had asked a question about it? I was looking for, you know, for anything I could find. Anyway, it was, it was, a, it was overwhelmingly, it was a very, it was a very um, frustrating, lonely experience where I felt like I didn't have anywhere to turn. And then when we got home and we were, uh, my daughter was there for a month. And uh, when we were all back home and they had basically, you know, kicked us out, uh, you know, what shall we do? And finally I contacted um, an acupuncturist uh, in our hometown that, that, that I had some knowledge of before. And I went and talked to him just myself. And, and said, you know, do you know anything about this? And he said, well, I'll bring her in and we can, you know, this or that. And I, and we, we brought her in and he talked to her for a long time and he turned to me and he said, I think she has Lyme disease. He said, but I am not prepared to deal with it. And so you have to find somebody that can, you know, that, that can help you with this. And so that gave me another direction. And then uh, the thing that, that really helped the most at that time for me as an information source was online patient support groups. And there's a lot more of those now because, you know, as I say, Facebook didn't exist. And, you know, there was just, there was, uh, it was called LimeNet. It's still there, uh, LimeNet.org. Org or com anyway, and there was also uh, California Lyme. There was a network of of, um, of uh, support groups for you know California Lyme, New York Lyme, whatever, and uh, and and California Lyme. I talked to those people, and they said, "You find this information. It's a variation on what you're doing with your podcast. <laughs> you know, you're finding people that have already been with it, you know, been dealing with it, and they give you some suggestions. And that's how." We found a doctor, we found an ILADS doctor. I don't know anything about ILADS before that. We found an ILADS doctor who was a couple of hours from our house, which um, isn't too bad in the, in the live world. Some people have to travel a lot further than that to get to, to somebody that knows something. And actually that was only nine months from when she first started showing symptoms to when we actually got a Lyme diagnosis and I realize now that that's actually a very short time. And uh, many people go years of going to doctors and taking tests and dealing with all this stuff and uh, you know, the family, family falling apart. And uh, because it is very, you know, it is very hard on the whole family. I, I have a son too, and, and blessedly he was not ill, but I think he sometimes, you know, years later, uh, somebody said, some, somebody that knew me from the Lyme world happened to meet him and, and said, gee, I, did, I didn't know Dorothy had a son. And he said, yeah, I'm familiar with that. You know, but, but you know, we can laugh about it now, but it, when, when a child is, is, is so sick, when one family member is so sick, you know, the resources of the family tend to revolve around that person. And that doesn't mean that the other family members don't still have needs. It doesn't mean that at all, but you know, it, it's, it's very hard. Many, many families are in that situation. It's very, so, very tough. Dorothy, I'd like to revisit a couple of issues that you discussed with us just um, during the last uh, couple of minutes. And the first is that 
you went through the traditional medical process and you were failed at many, many steps. So one of the things that I want to highlight um, that you didn't discuss yet, but I understand from having read your book is that some of the doctors actually prescribed medications, for example, that had a negative impact on your daughter. Not only didn't it help her, but it actually exacerbated the problem. So let's just talk about that. So you, you're a middle-class mom with resources. You have a child that was healthy and then, then crippled during the course of a very short window of time. You start bringing her to traditional doctors and you can't get a diagnosis. It's clear that she has Lyme disease because many other people who are outside of the traditional system are diagnosing her or suggesting that that's a path you need to examine. And it's one of the things Matt and I talk about all the time. Like we see Lyme very clearly. We meet people all the time saying, you need to get tested for Lyme disease because we know what the symptomology is, right? But the people in the traditional system not only fail to diagnose her, but they even actually do some things that exacerbate her situation. So let's talk about the doctor who you first treated with, and again, we'll allow him to remain nameless as well, um, who, who refused to diagnose her with Lyme and actually um, treated her with uh, some medications that exacerbated her situation. Yeah, well, it was, uh, it was, it was a, a specialist that we were referred to and, uh, and we, we went in and he said that she should get started on prednisone immediately because she had uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And I didn't know anything about juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. This guy is an expert. You, you know, you, so far we're at a point where we're trusting people. And, and they said, um, so we said, okay. And she was, uh, at that time we had rented a wheelchair because she she was going to school. She was going to school at that point and to get across the class. The, the, she, could, she could walk a little bit like across a room, but to get across a campus, you know, was just impossible and she still wanted to go to school. And so, um, so we just rented it on ourselves for ourselves and we arranged to have a friend at school that would take her from class to class because it was, it was awkward for her to push herself and so we went there. That, that's a whole little side thing. They get really irritated if you get a wheelchair on your own because it's like they believe that that should be prescribed. And it's like, I'm just trying to get her from point A to point B. <laughs> it seemed like the easiest way to do it. And um, it, he gave us this prednisone and then he ordered a whole bunch of tests and that were going to be done over scans and various things that were going to be done over the next few days. And we you know, just followed the orders and we took the medication and she, prior to that, as I said, she could hobble. She couldn't even hobble after that. She collapsed, at one point she was trying to hobble to the bathroom and she collapsed on the floor in tears. And that was the last time she walked for three years. Now, I don't know whether if we hadn't taken the prednisone, you know, if, if there had, if, if that alone, you know, would have, I mean, she clearly had all these issues, but it just seemed to my observation that that just pushed her over the cliff. And so uh, we'd only taken a couple of doses of it. And I just called the doctor's office to just tell them that we weren't taking it anymore. And um, the doctor was, was very angry 
you know, I was hearing this through the, through the nurse. And then we went in person and saw him. And, uh, and my husband was, was with us too. And uh, they, he was very angry that we had stopped taking the medication. And he had the results of the various tests that showed that she didn't have juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. According, I don't even remember now what the tests were. And, and it was just, and he basically, he basically fired us as patients at that point. Now, part of the reason he fired you as patients is because you were attempting to pursue the Lyme diagnosis at the same time, correct? And he said she can't have Lyme disease because there's no Lyme disease in California, correct? Right. It was all, it was all wrapped up. It was all wrapped up together. It was all wrapped up together. And, you know, it, it's just, uh, that was before I knew anything about IDSA guidelines and, you know, that kind of thing. I just, you know, I just didn't know that you think, you know, well, why don't, you know, so, so we, we actually got a different, she had not even had any line test at that point, And he fired us because we were asking for one. And then we got another doctor that ordered the test, but it said negative. Well, let's, know, say, so, let's say with the first doctor before you move to the second doctor. Yeah. But the first doctor was so afraid of a Lyme diagnosis that two things happened, which have me, you know, quite frankly, concerned about your daughter being a victim of the Lyme wars. The first mm-hmm. thing is he did not want to diagnose her with Lyme disease. The right. second thing is, even though she didn't have the symptoms for the arthritis that he ultimately wanted to clinically diagnose her with, he was willing to treat that in a way that actually made her Lyme disease worse. Or her, you know, oh, the, absolutely, absolutely. So, so yeah. it, it, it just, you know, we've had, we've had podcast guests in the past, Dorothy, where doctors had been willing to diagnose a patient with giantism, even though the woman was only five foot seven, rather than diagnose her, with Lyme yeah. disease. Yeah. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, with this construct of doctors fearful of Lyme disease and Lyme diagnosis, in many cases, they're actually hurting their patients by giving them um, medications such as prednisone, which will exacerbate the symptoms because we know that a steroid will, will um, have a negative impact on the immune response and exacerbate right. the symptoms, which is exactly what your daughter's case represents. Yeah. And so, and the thing is, when you're in it, it, as we were in it, it's like it's just happening to you. You know, it's just this is this is me. I'm I'm in this weird situation. We're trying to deal with it, and it was years, you know, some years later that I would find out that, that that's happening to countless people, countless people, all you know, all over the country, and and. One of the things that, that really, you know, I, I, I wrote the book that we'll get to in a moment. Uh, in, 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 it, it came out about five years ago. And at that time, even though I was talking to people all around the country and stuff for input for that, I hadn't really gone back east in, in, in the context of Lyme disease uh, until after the book was, you know, was out. And I went and did kind of a little book tour and talked to different, you know, Lyme groups and things like that. And one of the things that stunned me was that people that live in Connecticut and Massachusetts have the same kinds of experiences. I thought it was, well, because it's in California and they say, well, there's no Lyme disease in Davis, you know, or whatever. But no, people, people in Connecticut have trouble getting a Lyme diagnosis. And people in Massachusetts have trouble getting a Lyme diagnosis. 
and and I'm you know just anecdotally I'm aware of 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 a young woman. Well, she was young at the time. It was some years back that uh, she was pregnant when she got bitten by a tick in Connecticut. And you know they went to the emergency room right away, and they were told, "Oh, you don't have to worry about it. No problem." And and you know there's just the kinds of things that should be setting off alarm bells, uh, you know, all over the place. E even I just sort of assumed, you know, well, it, it, you know, if if you were at least if you were back in the Northeast, people would be saying, well, your experience in in New York. You know, I'm sorry. You you said you live in you live yes. on Long Island, right? Long Island, yes. There, there's, there's a ton of ticks on Long Island. There's a lot of, and 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 yet, it's like, it, it, it's it's stupefying. It's stupefying. So, Dorothy, I, I want to talk to you as a mom. Uh, one of the things that really moved me about your book, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read uh, uh, a quote from the book, is it was difficult to reassure my frightened, suffering daughter when I was frightened and suffering myself. Can you talk to us about what it was like to be a mom who was going through this very difficult time? You did share with us what your daughter was going through. You shared with us what your son was going through, but I'd like to know more about what you were going through and how your fears impacted your capacity to help your children through these challenges. Well, I guess I just always thought of myself as somebody that could handle stuff, you know? So something comes up and you handle it. You have a flat tire, you, you, you get it changed. <laughs> you call AAA. And, uh, and, and we, as you mentioned, you know, we, we, had, we had health insurance, we had doctors to go to, and suddenly it was like the ground was sort of um, disintegrating underneath our feet. And the, the, the institutions that we had trusted in the past, well, if there was a problem, you know, you go to the doctor and you, you know, you get what you need. Uh, it was, it was really, um, you know, that, that was going away. Any confidence that I had relative to that was going away. And also, uh, I remember at the time sending an email to a friend of mine and I, when we were in the worst of everything in the beginning and, and didn't know what we were, you know, what was happening. And I said, I, you know, those old cartoons where they show a train racing towards the gorge and the bridge is out and you know the train is going to go over. I said, that's what I feel like. We're on that runaway train and the bridge is out and we're going to go over the cliff and there's nothing we can do about it. And, and that was, uh, that was, you know, that was, that was just so, so difficult. And it was, you know, through that time that I started finding, I, you know, I somehow found LimeNet, I somehow found California Lime, because there wasn't anybody pointing you to it, you know, you had to, you had to find it. And then you would talk to somebody um, online, you would talk to somebody and they'd say, Oh, they had a child that had a similar situation. I, I was gearing towards the ones that were dealing with children. I mean, there's plenty of adults that were, were saying things about themselves, and that was useful too. But I would, uh, when my daughter was asleep, I would go into the computer and I would just, you know, use the search thing, the, the search engine on LimeNet, and I would look up any, you know, all these keywords and medications and whatever and find out things that people you know, that, that, that anybody else had said. And that was, that was my lifeline. Those were 
it was like, oh, there are people that get through it. And I remember one of the things I found online, it was a couple of years old at the time that I saw it, but it was a, a, an interview that, that the Washington Post had done with the author, Amy Tan. And, you know, she lived in California and New York or wherever, somewhere back east. You know, she sort of divided her time between the two places. And she said, you know, when she was in California, and, and she went, she was, she had lots of different problems than what we had. Uh, she had a lot of, you know, she was having hallucinations and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but she would go to top doctors and, you know, they would just say, no, no, it wasn't this, blah, 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 blah. And then when she finally got a Lyme diagnosis, they said, oh, well, you can't have Lyme because you're in California. And she's saying, well, but half the year I'm in New York. <laughs> so it was just, it, it was just very strange to me that so many people of seemingly different situations were, were running, you know, hitting their heads against the same brick walls. Dorothy, after you were fired by your daughter's rheumatologist because he was making her worse, what, what doctor did you see next? What were your next steps after that? Well, uh, that was actually before the, ch the children's hospital. And we thought that, well, by golly, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to go to the top here. And so um, we, we went through, as I said, it was, uh, I don't know, five or six months of, of going down those various, you know, rabbit holes. And then when we were finally, um, uh, you know, when, when, when we left the care of, of, of the hospital, then that was when we started. It was like, well, we've got to find something else. And that's when I started digging more deeply into, um, you know, other kinds of things. And that's when I said the acupuncturist said, you know, you've got to find somebody that can treat Lyme disease. And then that's when I found out that there were such a thing as ILATS doctors and that there were, at that time, I think there were four of them in California <laughs> and we managed to get into one of them. And, um, and it was just, and then that's a whole, you know, once you start getting on that, then you hear about things that you wouldn't have heard about before. And, um, you know, we tried hyperbaric and we tried, you know, lots of alternative treatments in addition to things. And, you know, they're really, go ahead. Before we get into the treatments that she, that your daughter did with, with these Lyme litter doctors, talk to us about how her symptoms progressed because it started out as a sports related injury. And you mentioned then she was in a wheelchair, but what other symptoms was she experiencing from Lyme disease? She had uh, um, what I now know is called allodynia or allodynia. I'm not sure how it's pronounced, where if you just, some people have it all over her body. She just had it on her shoulders, where if you touched her with even like a feather white touch, it would feel, she described it as it hurt like being stung by a thousand bees. And there's whole now on Facebook and other things, there's, there's, there's whole um, groups of people that, that, that have this symptom, not necessarily Lyme disease, uh, but many of them turn out to have Lyme disease. And uh, she, had, um, she had other issues. She had cognitive issues. She was, there was a time where she couldn't uh, remember 
things. Um, you know, you would say something to her and, and five minutes later you'd make a reference to it and she wouldn't know what you were talking about. And I, I think I, I think I mentioned in the book uh, this example where one time I was reading her a story and we were both enjoying the story. It was just a cute little book somebody gave us. And I read her part of it and then I, and I set it aside and I said, let me go make lunch. And then I came back and gave her lunch. And then I said, shall we continue with the story? And she was like, what story? She honestly didn't remember. And there were times when she, um, she gave up trying to, she could watch a movie, watch TV. That was before you had streaming services. We would, you could get Netflix on where they would mail you the, you know, the disc. And we were on the plan where you did five at a time so that as soon as you got one, you could send it back in and then they'd send you another one. So at any time we had something we could watch, um, you know, she could watch something, but if, uh, but if, you know, she couldn't read a paragraph and make sense out of it. And this is the same time that I have a whole section in the book about, about schooling is that this, the schools want to, you know, they have very clear ideas about how they want to do things. And one of the things that they want to do is that, you know, well, you should have what they call a home hospital teacher. And so this teacher comes to your house and, and then they, they work on, you know, things on you, with you. And, and we tried that. And there, was, there were times that my daughter at that time was sleeping one hour at night she would fall asleep between about midnight and one o'clock and then she would be awake and in misery the rest of the time and one time i think it was the first time the teacher was supposed to come she fell asleep about 7 a.m and the teacher was supposed to come at nine and there was no way i was going to wake her up and i called and the school district was very angry with me and said you know you're not allowed to change these <laughs> We ended up, so, so she was an eighth grade dropout. <laughs> we ended up dropping out and eventually um, doing some online things and some other things. And she, she ended up uh, going through a special uh, high school program and, and graduated and was valedictorian from that. But I mean, it was, that was a number of years, but eighth and ninth grade, it was, it was just a very, very lost, very lost time. I'm trying to think specifically about um, uh, about uh, sometimes she would have uh, like her her fingers felt numb, and uh, she just you know mainly as you said if you, if you asked her what was going on she would just say that everything hurt, and and then at at one point we had an unfortunate thing with a, one of the hospital physical therapists did something with her and after that point. <clears throat> she couldn't sit up straight. She had to have, like, she couldn't, she could neither sit up straight nor lie down straight. She had her most comfortable angle was at a, you know, was at an angle like you would have in a hospital bed. And I was asking, um, you know, what it was after we were home from the, the children's hospital, but before we figured out anything else. And I was asking the physical therapist, you know, maybe we should get her a hospital bed. And they were like, oh, no, don't do that. That's just catering to her. And one of the, when I went to see the, the acupuncturist who eventually suggested Lyme, he said, he asked her, 
He said, is, is there any position where you feel less bad than, it, than others? And she said, well, if I'm at an angle, like, a, like we had like a lounge chair, like a patio lounge chair that you know, she would use at home. She said that was less, un, you know, less painful than others. And he just kind of turned to me and said, well, why don't you rent her a hospital bed? And it's like, you know, the true answer to that is because, you know, the hospital said I shouldn't do that. I'd be a bad mother if I did that. <laughs> and I went home and I rented a hospital bed. And, you know, we, she had that for, you know, a couple of years. I mean, I think we eventually bought one. But it was, uh, you know, it was, it was, uh, uh, anyway, lots, lots of, lots of, lots of strange things, but cognitive, cognitive things and, um, and emotional stuff of being, you know, that's a real depressing situation to be in anyway. And then, you know, what may have, you know, Lyme disease, you know, can organically cause depression as well. And so that was, that was an issue as well. And we did find her um, a, uh, a specialist, uh, you know, a child, child therapist that, that saw her throughout the time who did not go into it knowing anything about Lyme disease, but was very willing to be educated. And she ended up being um, a, a good partner and, uh, you know, in the healing process and, and actually now uh, sees Lyme patients in addition to others because she's, she's acquired some knowledge, some knowledge about it. So Dorothy, so, this, yeah. this period of time before you found your Lyme literate doctor through ILADS, was there anything that you stumbled upon that helped your daughter, aside from therapy that helped her get through the psychological components, that you can recommend as a tip or a trick or a hack to people that are listening to treat some of the symptoms? Um, there were things that we didn't find in that situation. Uh, I mean, we we've, we've, we've found them later. So see, we had, you know, we had years to work on that. <laughs> uh, there were some things that, um, uh, again, that I found about online about um, um, castor oil packs, which is, you know, castor oil. I, I you know, I, I always heard castor oil was something, you know, like you'd read in novels that somebody's grandmother made them take when they were feeling ill. I knew nothing about it. But you can actually put it and make a little poultice out of, like, um, I took an old flannel pillowcase and and tore it up <laughs> into pieces and you'd and you would put this on it on your knee the knees were the things that worked the best for her she had a lot of knee pain and she said that 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 um that that helped her feel better it, you know it didn't it, it brought some relief uh later you know through the years we found there's a lot of kinds of body work that that help people you have to be careful with body work getting a massage or Reiki treatment or you know there's a variety of other things sometimes those can make people feel worse <laughs> but she found that you know as we continued the journey as it were that that we we found some people that that were um there, there was actually a, a massage therapist in our town who uh specializes in medical massage and she she knows a lot about different kinds of pain things and she was she was very helpful but we didn't actually get to that till later um that i i didn't really feel like there was anything in from that time 
But when people ask me about um, pain things, I, I can report <laughs> that I hear things, you know, basically on the, you know, the line that, the Lyme support groups, patient support groups, where people will report things and something that helps one person will not necessarily help somebody else. And so my recommendation is find out, you know, investigate things and see, see what's helpful. A lot of people, we tried acupuncture early on and um, my daughter didn't want to go forward with it. She, she, didn't, she didn't like it. I am aware of people who have been helped very much by acupuncture. I think a lot of it depends on the practitioner. <laughs> so, you know, so that's part of it. Uh, there are some people um, feel better with um, uh, taking an infra far infrared sauna. Some people feel better if they take um, Epsom salt baths. And there are, for every person who said they feel better with that, there's another person who said, I tried that and I felt worse. So I, you know, I am willing to, for, for actually for about eight years, I uh, was co-founder and leader of a, of a Lyme support group, patient support group in Sacramento. It was really after my daughter um, had had improved and moved on. It wasn't for her, but I was I was getting more involved in activism and stuff. And and there, but it was very interesting in the in the group that there would be people. Somebody would say, you know, one particular, you know, somebody a Rife machine really helped them, and they would, you know, offer to let the other person use the Rife machine, and that person would use it, and they would say it didn't help. So it's uh, one of the things uh, in, in Mylan Data, the program that we'll maybe talk about later, but is collecting information from different, you know, different people. It's like, what, what helped you? What, what, you know, what made you feel better? Not very many people, uh, and it wasn't necessarily talking about pain specifically, just different kinds of symptoms. Not very many people uh, in that, in that program of the population of people enrolled in that program. Not many people have said um, um, stem cells, but of the ones that said they did stem cells, uh, only 3% said that they felt that it helped them. And uh, so-, so, so, so Dr. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt. So you said of all the people who tried stem cells that participated in that study, uh, which is around 13,000, only 3% said they made them feel better? I think there were only 300 people in the whole group who said they had tried stem cells. And of those 300, 3% said it made them feel better. Wow. Now, it was not that these are just people. There's probably people that have taken stem cells that have not enrolled in this program. I mean, we were not, you know, we, we were not asking, you know, we weren't soliciting people that had done stem cells. It was like, you know, if you've been diagnosed with Lyme disease, will you answer all these questions? And as I said, it was, it was not a very big sample. And so I'm not saying, you know, I'm really not making any conclusions over that. It's just that that's, <clears throat> I would say just anecdotally, I have, you know, I've just through the years heard from a lot of people about different kinds of symptoms and, uh, and treatments. And some people, uh, one woman that was in the Sacramento support group for a number of years, 
was was very ill and had done all of the stuff with ILADS doctors and all kinds of things. And she would seem to be getting better and then she would relapse. And she ended up going to Peru and working with a a shaman. (laughs) And she came back in great shape. And, uh, and I believe is still doing well. I, I, I'm not really in contact with her anymore, but, but, you know, and so somebody else <clears throat> was a friend of hers in the group went to the same place, you know, she helped her and she went down there and they went to the same shaman, did the same treatment and it didn't help that woman at all. And so I, I you know, I'm not saying it didn't help the first woman, <laughs> You know, it's just that I hear so much of that, that what helps, you know, what helps one person doesn't necessarily help somebody else. And that's one of the crazy things about this. So Dorothy, it really is trial and error in the Lyme community, because as you pointed out, what works for me may not work for your daughter. So talk to us more about your ILADS Lyme literate doctor who finally diagnosed your daughter with Lyme disease. Once you received that diagnosis, what was the treatment plan, plan for your daughter and how did it work out? Well, um, she, she took um, a lot of antibiotics, and, uh, but this person, uh, this particular practitioner also um, referred us to a number of alternative practitioners that did things for detoxification and supporting the immune system and all of that kind of thing. And the real game changer in terms of my daughter's pain level was um, a specialized chiropractor who actually we got to ourselves. It was not not through our ILADS doctor. And uh, he did, uh, he specialized in uh, upper cervical, um, you know, there's a phrase for it, upper, upper cervical techniques, basically. And it was amazing. She had been uh, in terrible pain and in a wheelchair for three years. And we worked with this guy for a couple of months. And she was largely pain-free and walking after a couple of months. Now, she continued to, she, she, she still had Lyme disease and Bartonella. <laughs> but everybody with Lyme disease and Bartonella isn't, isn't racked in pain in a wheelchair. You know, so it was dealing with certain kinds of symptoms. And um, she continued with that chiropractor for a long time. It wasn't just like, okay, we did do this and you're done. It was, uh, you know, sort of a you know, continuing, continuing process. But that was, was a huge part. That was a huge part of her, um, you know, of her getting well. And part of it was that, as I, as I mentioned before, to her mind, everything was, I hurt so much and I can't walk. And so, yes, she had other things like, like uh, you know, mental, you know, cognitive issues and things like that. But to her mind, it was just, you know, I hurt so much and I can't walk. And also the allodynia where you couldn't even touch her, you know, I, I couldn't touch, nobody could touch her shoulders for, you know, I hadn't, hadn't been able to give her a hug for three years. And, uh, and it, the, the allodynia continued beyond the time that that uh, that she was otherwise pain free and walking, but eventually that cleared up, and it's the same with the work with the chiropractor. He said we've just got to keep keep doing this, and it was he described it as she was in a situation where the pain switch was stuck in the on position, and by realigning the body, 
and um, you know, doing things that, that would get to the point where the body would turn the pain switch off and darned if that didn't happen. And yet she continued to have issues and she continued, got to a situation where she really, if, if she, she was feeling better and she would try to get off the antibiotics. And as soon as she got off the antibiotics, it was like, it would, it would all come back. Things would just, I mean, she wasn't back in the wheelchair, but the pain and the, you know, a lot of things like that. And so it was, it was a, it was a long process. I mean, she's, she's been off antibiotics for years now, but I mean, she was on them for years before. And so there are problems that come from being on antibiotics too long. Yes. So on that note, Dorothy, so your daughter was on antibiotics, supplements, and other, other treatment options from this Lyme litter doctor, and using those tools with the physical, um, I'm sorry, with the chiropractor, she got the, the pain relief, right? Now, right. when every time you took her off the antibiotics, you mentioned the pain would come back still with the chiropractor, is that correct? Right, right. And so now, it, was, it was the antibiotics were doing something. You know, and uh, it, whether it was what we think it's doing or it's doing something else, <laughs> you know, the antibiotics were doing something. And uh, she did, uh, as I say, it, 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 it was just so she was also doing, um, you know, uh, my understanding is there's a lot of times that they, they say that if you, you know, if you stop antibiotics and the symptoms immediately come back, you're probably dealing with Bartonella. And she definitely had Bartonella. And Bartonella is, um, you know, is, is, is really hard to, to get rid of. You know, some people think it's even harder to get rid of than Lyme. And so she was doing, you know, a variety of treatments. And, and as I say, eventually, eventually it pulled together and eventually it worked. And then she went to college. She, she lived at home for two years and went to community college. And then, and then she transferred uh, to Oregon, to Portland State University at, as a junior. And while she was up there, she started having all kinds of weird problems that were different weird problems than she had before. And, uh, and the book really came out before this. I think the book sort of ends with her going off to college or something like that. Dorothy, before we go into yes. that, I just want to, I want to interrupt real quick. So how long was it from the time you saw your Lyme litter doctor to the point where your daughter was able to have some sort of life again and be able to go off to college? Was this a couple of months, a couple of years? Give us an idea of this time frame that took place. Oh, well, it was, um, we, we saw the, the, uh, we saw the, uh, the Lyme doctor in, um, in the tail end of 05. And by, she, she was walking three years later her walking day is 080808, August 8th, 08. That was the, the day of the, the Olympics and in China. And they'd chosen that date because it was good luck. And we said, it is good luck. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, so, she was, so she was in a wheelchair uh, until then. And then she was in high school at that point. And then she graduated from high school in 10. And then she was uh, lived at home for another two years going to community college, but she was not in a wheelchair, but she was still under treatment. She still had issues, but it was the, the, the huge thing was, was gone. And then, so, so it was really, um, I guess she went to college in 12 
And so she was, she was pretty much off antibiotics by then, I think. And, um, and she started, um, so I've lost track however many years that is, five, five, seven years. And so, um, so that, you know, it's been a long haul. And then she started having weird symptoms that were different than she any than anything she'd had before, but they were de- debilitating. And we were, you know, we'd fly her home and we'd go to the doctor and stuff. And then um, my my co-author of of the book, uh, Sandy Berenbaum, uh, is uh, a Lyme literate therapist who who lives in Connecticut. And I sent her an email and I said, you know, Rachel's having all these problems, and you know, we sort of you know laid them out. And I said, you got any ideas? And she sent them to a friend of hers who is an IWADS doctor and didn't say who it was, didn't say anything, you know, said, you know, do you have any ideas for this person? And the person read the list and said, mold. (laughs) And so that was sort of another rabbit hole we went down. She was off the charts. And of course, Portland had all kinds of, you know, mold issues in the the rooms she was in and she and her boyfriend at one point snuck in and took a mold sample from one of the rooms that she'd been, you know, had her classes in and, and it was just, you know, stacky buttress. Uh, that, that um, building has since been turned down, you know, book torn down <laughs> at, at Portland, but mold really, um, really incapacitated her in related and different ways than the Lyme, than the Lyme situation. And a lot of people with Lyme disease end up having issues with mold. Dorothy, let's, let's, let's just focus on that for a second. So now your daughter's finally feeling better and she's starting to have these new symptoms in college, right? And mm-hmm. now, now you're finding that they're related to mold because more like, most likely she's more susceptible to mold because of her previous experience with Lyme disease. So explain to us how these symptoms were different so people listening can try to identify what symptoms may be mold-related and what symptoms may just be a consequence of actual Lyme disease itself. Uh, that's, that's a tough question uh, because the, the symptoms of Lyme and mold can be so intertwined. I happen to have um, something um, sitting on my desk right now. It's called the Townsend Letter. And it's, it's, um, it's a magazine that's been around for a long time. Their subtitle is The Examiner of Alternative Medicine. And the cover story uh, is uh, Dr. Nicola Ducharme. Uh, I don't know if you, if you guys have, have you interviewed we, her? We have actually interviewed her. Yes, she's a, yeah. a wonderful and person. And her, her cover story is about Lyme disease and mold. <laughs> and, uh, and that she, she talks about how, you know, when somebody first comes into her, one of the things that she needs with these kinds of problems, you know, she needs to try to tease out, you know, is, is, is this because of Lyme? Is this because of mold? Is it, you know, because of both (laughs) or something else, you know, and that's, that's the thing. So, so in, in my daughter's case, and I would say, you know, this, this is the kind of thing, this was an example. I I wish I had it right in front of me, the email that we sent to, to my friend, but, but it was like, cause I had asked my daughter, describe your symptoms and I'm going to send it to Sandy and see if she has any ideas. And, and one of the examples was that if she um, picked up a, um, 
like a, a bag of groceries, not a terribly heavy bag, bag of groceries, but, but, you know, a bag of hefty bag of groceries and then set it down. Then it was like her arm was just totally weak and she couldn't use it again for a while. And then it would come back. And there were similar things like that. And she, she went to some of the specialists up at uh, Oregon and, you know, they, they, you know, did a neurological this and a, something else that and everything and that she didn't have all of these awful things that it might be, but nobody knew what it was. And then when we started going down the mold office, you know, rabbit hole, <laughs> it's not a rabbit hole, it's just a windy path. When we, when we started going down the, the, the mold windy path, uh, that there were just, we just realized that there were a lot of things that were, um, you know, she, she may have had mold, be, you know, mold might have been part of her issue before, except that where we live, you know, isn't like Portland. It's, you know, it's a hotter, drier, you know, kind of thing. And so maybe, you know, you just didn't have this, you know, heavy duty stachybotrys mold in the basement of a, an old building in Portland State, you know, and um, so it took her quite a while to, to, um, to go through the mold treatment and, and, but it did, it did ultimately help. And then, um, sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt again. I just want to ask you, what was the treatment for the mold illness? I'm sure a lot of people listening are curious to know what your daughter did to heal and recover from the mold exposure? Well, one of the things that you have to do is you have to avoid it, you know, so you have to make sure you're living in a place that's clean and you're avoiding places that, um, that are moldy. And uh, it got to the fat, you know, to the point where she had, she had a real sensitive nose. She could, she could walk into a room and say, oh, there's mold here and turn around and go back. You know, that they, they say that there's mold sniffing dogs, but I think a lot of uh, mold patients kind of, fun, you know, learn that for themselves, you know, oh, it smells like that, I got to get out. Uh, and, and she had her place, she was living in an apartment and she had it tested and it was okay. So anyway, uh, but then there are, there's, there's, it's, it's a complicated protocol, but basically there are things that you do to, um, you know, to, to detoxify your, your, you know, mold. A lot of people have mold circulating around in them and there's ways that you have to get it out. And sometimes it's taking charcoal supplements. And, so things like you know, binders these, that will help bind the mold and eliminate right. it and get it out of your body in addition to avoiding the exposure of the mold as much as possible because in some cases it is impossible to fully avoid mold and it sounds like that was the case for your daughter because she couldn't not go to class right so she had yeah. to keep going to school but try to limit her exposure as much as possible right. Yeah except she ended up having to drop out of school. I mean, she graduated, um, she graduated, but then she, uh, and she got into graduate school there and she had to drop out because uh, she was so, she was so impaired by the, by the mold. And so um, she has, um, you know, she has, has moved on to other things and she is now lives in, in uh, Arizona and I remember that when she told the mole doctor she was moving to Arizona, he said, yay. But the fact is that even though that, that it's drier there, you have all of these air conditioned buildings that have leaky air conditioning. And so 
she said the one that when they hadn't been in Arizona very long, she said at one point they went in, they weren't staying at the hotel, but for some reason they walked into a hotel. It was a meeting there. So I don't remember what it was. And she said, she just, she walked in and she turned around and she walked out because she could smell it. It was mold. So I got to ask and, you, and I'm going to interrupt again. It's just, there's so many good parts about what you're saying and, and we, we don't want to miss some of this stuff. If you had to describe it, it's probably hard because I don't know if your daughter ever explained this to you. What, would she describe the mold smell like? So people that think they may start to be understanding what the smell is like, people that are sick with Lyme and mold illness, how can you describe that? Or how can, how can your daughter describe that? Yeah, I, I, I don't have a good answer to that question. I don't know. I always assumed that it was sort of a musty smell, but, but I don't know that I ever had her, um, you know, explain that. But, uh, but then she, it was just because the oh and it didn't even while she was while she was still up in Oregon at one point she woke up and couldn't see out of her left eye and it turned out she she described it as looking like there was a gray frisbee in front of her eye but she could see color around the edges but the gray frisbee was most of it and it turned out that she had something called central retinal vein occlusion, which is something that typically happens to people that are really old, like in their 80s or something. You know, it's just, it's, it's a blood clot behind the retina, I believe. And, um, and she, uh, anyway, it, it, we, we later found in, in consultation with our eyelids doctors and others that that actually happens a lot with people with Bartonella. And, uh, and so we, um, you know, we went, I flew up there and we went to eye doctors and specialists and whatever. And the treatment for that is, is that they give you a shot of something that's actually a cancer drug, even though it's this not, not cancer, they give you a shot in your eyeball, which doesn't sound charming to most of us. And, um, and, and, that, and that they suspected that she would have to have treatments every month or two for about a year or two till they were, till this cleared up. Okay. And then I started talking to my network and it turns out that there are studies that show that hyperbaric oxygen treatment is helpful for this situation. And so um, she had actually had hyperbaric uh, as part of the Lyme thing. And that's one of those things. Some people have wonderful results. Some people have no results. Some people are in the middle. Eh, we were kind of in the middle to the, to the low end. We, di we didn't feel like there was much of a response to hyperbaric when she took it initially for Lyme disease. When she took it for the eyes, she had her eyesight back after five treatments. And um, she had had one shot before we did, before we did the hyperbaric, uh, you know, from the other eye doctor. And when she went back, and this was a top specialist, Oregon, one of their big places there. Anyway, stopping saying names. But uh, he, she went back to him and, and said, yeah, look, you know, I, I, I did the, you know, look, I can see. <laughs> and she told him about the hyperbaric and everything. And he said, well, I'm really glad you could see, but I just want you to know that the hyperbaric didn't have anything to do with it. It was because you had the shot of Avastin. And 
but he's the one that told us that she was going to need 10 or 12 shots. So, uh, so anyway, I, I said, I'm happy she has her eyesight back. I don't care what, which, you know, whether maybe it's a combination of the two. I don't know. And uh, so, so that was, you know, that was before the, that happened before the identification of the mold problem. And so this kind of thing I hear from Lyme patients a lot that you just, these things come up, weird conditions come up. And if somebody hasn't given a, a hasn't given a study about it, you know, there's no place in there that says, oh, you know, this is going to happen. You know, th th this, this thing is directly related to Lyme disease or Bartonella or whatever. I mean, a lot of it is anecdotal. All I know is we got our daughter out of the wheelchair by doing a package of things. We got her eyesight back after doing a package of things. We got her to be able to tolerate things, you know, mold and stuff. And then she was in Arizona and uh, working, working at a school. And, and uh, she's, a, she's a speech therapist in the school. And, and uh, she had, well, two, two different issues. One was the thing about like picking up the groceries that had happened a little bit back in, in Oregon. She had that, but it was much heavier where she would, if she exerted, picked up her right arm at all and did anything with it, it would fall to the side and be, uh, she couldn't move it and it was purple and it was cold to the touch. And she went to a lot of, um, you know, the different kinds of doctors that you go to and everybody, well, I don't know, I don't know what that is. And uh, we found, again, through talking to other people, that uh, there's, we found this wonderful practitioner called a chiropractic neurologist. And he worked with her for about half a year and that problem went away. And there was no medication that was part of it. It was all kind of brain brain stuff and uh, you know sort of brain exercises and and things and you know we we just we've just had and I and I didn't even get to the part we're talking about DNRS and I don't know you know this is just I don't know if this is the direction you guys wanted to go in but Dorothy this is this is perfect you're going in the right direction <laughs> okay. and I, we want to explore though this 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 neurologist you just described because your daughter wasn't able to really move her arm had almost no muscle or or ability in well, use of her arm and, and it now, would come back it would come back it would be like she would do something with her arm and then she couldn't use it for like a day or something. And she would be incredibly tired and she would just have to go to bed. And then the next day it would be like it came back and, and it was all right until the next time it happened. And it was just that I had never even heard of chiropractic neurology, but it is apparently somebody becomes a chiropractor uh, and that's, I don't know, four years or whatever it is. And then they do an additional four years of training in neurology, but they are not MDs. They do not prescribe medication and they have things. One, I, I went to one of her um, appointments with her once and they had one of the things is like they had her uh, with right next to a mirror and that she was supposed to do certain kinds of movements while she was work, you know, looking in the mirror. And 
I had just watched a television show, I think it was Grey's Anatomy, where they had somebody doing something like that, uh, you know, as just part of the storyline where they were doing this mirror images and it had to, you know, I don't even remember the details, but it was like, oh yeah, that's the thing I just saw on TV. And it, it's, it's fascinating. And I, you know, I talked to the doctor about it and he does not treat Lyme disease. I mean, he's not somebody that you would go to to be treated for Lyme disease, but he treats a lot of people who have Lyme disease and they have these um, issues where it's just, he said, you know, cause I was saying, well, can you explain what this is? And he said, well, it's probably an oversimplification, but he said one part of the brain isn't adequately talking to another part of the brain. And we just have things that, that we have, you know, we have ways of, of fixing that. And there, um, some of the things were uh, homework she would do at home where she was supposed to put like dots, like little sticky dots on her arm and then look in a mirror and like not looking at the arm, not, not looking at the, the arm itself, but looking in the mirror, do certain kinds of movements. And, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I can't explain it more than that, but there's just things of using the brain differently. And um, I can show you, she's made, um, she's, she's made videos. She did a thing where she interviewed the, the doctor about this and he has it on his website, but uh, you know, you, you, you ought to interview her. <laughs> She's, she's had an interesting, interesting experience. Well, then, so we get to about, we, we, we got past all that and her arm was working fine and she can do, you know, do things. In this time, over the years of, you know, Lyme and then mold and then, you know, whatever this other stuff was, she was finding that she was developing uh, allergies to foods. And she would eat something, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't that she was eating junk food. It was like, you know, one time, you know, she could eat asparagus, and then later it would be like, now nah, I lost, she would say, I lost it. I've lost asparagus. If she ate asparagus, it would make her feel really sick. Or, you know, and so if she was going to come home and visit, I'd have her text me a list of what she could eat, and I would go to the store and I would buy them. So we would have it on hand because there was no other way to, you know, plan around it. And she was getting more chemically sensitive. And, um, and so if she was around somebody who was wearing perfume or she works in an elementary school and they would, you know, clean stuff with Clorox wipes or the, the you know, the chemicals that you use to clean bathrooms. If she even just walked by the bathroom, it would give her a headache. And it was getting worse and worse and worse. And it got to the point where she was, almost having seizures uh, with some of these exposures to the chemicals. And um, I happened to, she had not seen her mole doctor for a number of years. And I happened to call him about a different matter uh, relative to my work with LymeDisease.org. And I was talking to him on the phone and we discussed whatever we discussed. And then uh, he, as we were hanging up, he said, well, how's Rachel doing? And I said, well, you know, I said, she's doing very well, except there's this weird thing about this chemical sensitivity and food sensitivities. And he said, look up DNRS. And so I said, okay, I'll tell her that. And we really didn't discuss it any further. 
And that stands for Dynamic Neural Retraining Systems. And it's that apparently, and I read the book and they have a tape or disc that you can get that is part of the program. And when she was done with that, she sent it to me. So I have watched it. I've not done the program myself, but I'm aware of, of what they do. And it's that part, as I understand it, part of when you're sick for a long time, or lots of, you know, many things, if you're in that situation for a long time, your brain kind of gets used to doing things in a certain way. And so it isn't necessarily, um, I'm not explaining this very well, but they have exercises for retraining your brain to react differently to it. And so the limbic system is, is the part that sort of just reacts without you thinking about it. And a lot of people have been helped by this program for specifically food sensitivities and, and chemical sensitivities. And short version is she did that on her own. You're supposed to do it every day for six months. She did it like a religious program she she's can be very single-minded about things and and you know she did it you were supposed to do it an hour a day and and she did it and by the end of the time she could eat anything and she could she could um have you know she didn't have she could walk by the bathroom at, at school without fainting from the chemicals and there has been, uh, you know, I've read other books about this kind of thing. It's, it's, you know, the brain does a lot of things. <laughs> and this is, this is, there, there are, there are other treatments that, you know, it's not just this exact program. There are, there are other things that are like this that are, that are limbic system retraining. And, um, you know, I don't know if you've interviewed uh, Dr. Neil Nathan, uh, he wrote a book called Toxic. He's Lyme mold and other integrative care type things. And and he uh, he recommends the DNRS program to a lot of his patients, that that's part of the picture. Now, she had already done, a, I, I do not believe, I don't know, this is just my opinion. I do not believe that somebody that is really sick and hasn't dealt with all of these things, I don't think they would be able to fix it just by doing brain stuff. But it's, um, you know, clearly, you know, as I say, results are, it worked for her. Well, Dorothy, you know? you're, not, you're not alone in that because, and, and, and we tend to agree that it has to be at the right time in your healing journey for you to benefit from something like DNRS. And yeah. we've heard from many, many past podcast guests, and most recently it was Rachel Roller, who we interviewed, who talked about how she went through everything, similar to your daughter, did all the treatment, she made major strides in her healing, but was still having these food and chemical sensitivities. But then when yeah. she started DNRS and brain retraining exercises, she really got her life back. And yeah. she felt the same way, that she had to be at that point in her healing journey to be able to benefit from that therapy. So. It's something that seems so bizarre at first, but many people are having amazing, amazing results from, from trying this, this therapy. And I wanna ask you this question now because your daughter went from being in a wheelchair, not being able to sleep and being miserable, but it sounds like she's made such major progress. So, so where's, how's your daughter's health today? Um, she's in good shape. She's, she's, she's in good shape. And uh, she, um, you know, she had been doing uh, a lot of, um, physical activity and stuff that, that a lot of that has been shut down 
And, uh, you know, with the pandemic, she'd been going, there's something called uh, aerial yoga. <laughs> where you, <laughs> it's like a gym that has things hanging from the ceiling and you, you do, I don't know, I've, I've seen videos of it. <laughs> I haven't seen her do it in person. So, but I mean, she can just, she, you know, she can just physically do a lot of stuff she couldn't do today. And, uh, but it's, it's, you know, un unfortunately, you know, with the pandemic, things are, um, you know, she, you know, she, she considers herself, um, you know, she, she, she doesn't want to get COVID. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she considers herself like, whoa, I don't, you know, let's, you know, we're, we're, we're not doing that. So, so she's, she's been doing her best to, uh, you know, isolate, etc. But um, it, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's amazing to me. And even when she had just gotten to the point where she was out of the wheelchair, but she still had lots of other issues. You know, when I was doing the support group, there would be people that would say, I heard that your daughter was in the wheelchair and, and now she's out. And so I want to have a list of everything that she, she did. And then I want to do the exact same things. And I, I'm always willing to share our experience, but I really try to put it in the context is this is the package of stuff that worked for us. And I've heard things from people, um, you know, that, that, uh, you know, that, that, that something works well for them. Some, as I mentioned that earlier, somebody else does it, it works poorly, you know, in, in the, 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 um, in the Sacramento support group, there was somebody, something you don't hear about much anymore, but there was an alternative treatment in the early days that was getting a lot of currency that was the salt C protocol, uh, high, high levels of sodium, high levels of vitamin C. And, um, and that th there were people that claimed that it really helped them. And there was um, a fellow that uh, in our group that had had Lyme for years, had Lyme before, it was a thing, <laughs> you know, it had been bitten by a tick and had health problems before, you know, it had ever been identified as Lyme disease. And later, you know, had was anyway. So he tried the salt sea protocol and he said that it helped him amazingly. And he came to the group and he told people all about it. And I was saying, I know him. I'm glad he found something that helped him. And uh, another woman in the group talked to him about it and went home and tried it. And she ended up in the hospital and she had undiagnosed liver problems. And apparently um, this thing is the wrong thing to do for undiagnosed liver problems. And, and I don't know anything more about it than that. And, and, but as I say, two people that I've known for a long time and I and she ended up being okay. But, but uh, she, you know, th that, that I have respect for both of them and they, they both did it and they got totally opposite results. Same thing happens with antibiotics. Some people say, boy, they just put me on that thing and then I'm, I was good to go. And other people, no. And so it really is uh, important for people to, you know, do their own work, figure out what works for them, try things a little bit before you try it a lot. And, uh, and find out, you know, that they, I have no personal experience at all, but there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that are having good results with disulfiram. 
And what I would suggest to anybody that asks is there are some Facebook groups for people that are on disulfiram, specifically disulfiram for Lyme. And I would recommend that somebody get on there and really get to know them and talk to them and figure out what you're doing. And if, if you decide to go in that, if you decide to go in that direction, I don't give people treatment advice. You know, I don't tell them they should or shouldn't try disulfiram, but I'm happy to tell people that I think they should do their research before they do something. So Dorothy, it's really wonderful to hear that your daughter is doing so well. So now I have uh, another question for you. And how are you doing? How is mom doing after going, going on this really, really difficult journey with your daughter? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, when I was in the midst of all of that, and I hear this from other people too, it's like, boy, when, you know, when I'm done with this fire that's right in front of me, you know, I'm going to do something to fix this situation. And, um, you know, when I when when my daughter was still in the worst of it, um, was when I found out online that that um, Andy Wilson was making the movie Under Our Skin. And they were, uh, you know, they were doing fundraising. That was before GoFundMe pages <laughs> or Kickstarter or whatever. But they were, you know, circling around and asking people for donations and whatever. And, yeah, you know, I sent them a hundred bucks. I, you know, I'm not going to be, I, I, I'm not in a position to be, a, a, you know, one of his big time donors. But I sent him an email and I said, is there anything that I can do for you long distance? I said, I can't leave the house. But I said, I'm... I remember saying I'm good with my Google finger. <laughs> so I said, can, can you, I said, is there anything that I can do for you? And he sent me a, a list of stuff of things that they wanted to research. You know, just that, you know, can you, locate, I don't even remember now what it was. Can you find this? Can you find this? And I went through the list and I found them all and I sent them back. And, and quickly, <laughs> you know, like the next day or something. And he was like, oh, well, thank you. And then he sent me some more. And so I remember feeling empowered by that. And then when that movie came back, they also gave me, my name is in the credits <laughs> and uh, research or something. I didn't know what they said. But, but um, I was like, yeah, I can, I can do something. And so that's when, and be, I had long been involved with these, these online groups. And so uh, one of California Lyme was started by Phyllis Mervine, who's the founder of what's now called LymeDisease.org. At that time, it was called California Lyme Disease Association. And I got to know her through that. And, uh, and eventually it was like, well, I, when I got to a point where I could do things more, even if it wasn't so much leaving the house, but I could, you know, sit at the computer and do my own stuff. It wasn't just, you know, just specifically trying to, to treat, you know, treat, find treatment for my daughter. Um, I just um, started getting involved with, with, as I say, first Calda, now, now we're called LymeDisease.org. And when I, then, then Facebook started in like, um, oh, I don't, you know, oh six or seven or something like that and i think i got on it on oh eight that was when my daughter started walking and my life freed up a lot and um and so you know facebook and twitter and 
that, that was when people were just starting to talk about blogs. That was just a thing. I remember when people were talking about blogs and I was never sure exactly what blogs were. And, um, and then the, that was when the Huffington Post got started, which now is kind of a different thing than it was in the beginning, but that was really groundbreaking. And they had all these collection of blogs in one place. And I remember, um, meeting Lorraine Johnson in person, who's the head of our organization. And I told her, I, I told her about that when I was looking for information, there, there wasn't any place to go and get it. Where's this, you know, I want information about Lyme disease. And, and so we talked about starting blogs. And so we did, it's been uh, 11, 11 and a half years ago, we started the LymeDisease.org blogs and I started a blog called Touch by Lyme and Lorraine started something called Lyme Policy Wonk. We now use blogs from, um, you know, guests, you know, uh, you know, guest writers and, you know, other, uh, other people. So we, uh, you know, in different, in different categories, sometimes patients telling their stories, sometimes a researcher, you know, that kind of thing. We also just run news items if something comes out you know, relative to, to Lyme disease. And so, so we started that and then, then we started posting those on, on Facebook and Twitter and now there's Pinterest and Instagram and all of that kind of spreading out to that. And you know, what's really happened in the, in the beginning, you know, 15 years ago, I could, you know, could only find one book on Amazon that had to do with Lyme disease. And there was very little information online that had to do with Lyme disease. And I started Google alerts for myself for Lyme disease and co-infections and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And the Lyme disease Google alert, I'd get maybe one notification a week. <laughs> and now it's the opposite problem. There's so much, you know, I get probably a hundred Google alerts for Lyme disease. You know, I probably get a hundred listings a day and it doesn't mean that they're all necessarily worthwhile, but, but they show up and all, there's lots of information about Lyme disease, uh, you know, from the various advocacy groups, which I'd say in general, this is good information. There's a lot of information that isn't, uh, you know, that, 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 that isn't great. And and there's tons of books on Amazon if you just put in Lyme disease. You know, there's this, I haven't done that lately, but I mean, there's a, it's a big number, whatever it is, it's a big number. And so now the problem, <coughs> the challenge <coughs> is to curate inf information and to get, you know, there's all this stuff out here, you know, you're looking for Lyme disease information and it's like you stand there and a dump truck, you know, buries you in, in you know, so to speak. And so um, it's, so, so I still do the, the I'm, I'm the, the editor of the blogs. And so, uh, you know, other people may write them, but I choose them and shape them and <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and then we, um, so, and, and then that, that information is shared via social media and whatever. And so I get uh, a lot of satisfaction out of that. And I feel like I remember those days, I, you know, back in 05 or 06, uh, there was a time where uh, uh, Dr. Jones, the, the pediatric Lyme specialist in, in uh, Connecticut was uh, being brought up on charges. 
And uh, that's later shown in the movie Under Our Skin for people that might be familiar with that. But I was aware through, through looking at things on uh, um, my net that, that this was going on. And I kept, like, I wanted to have more information about it. And I would Google it and whatever. And there was, there was no information out there in the, in the universe, seemingly. And so I, uh, that's one of the things that I have viewed our, our news blogs and the social media that goes along with it of pointing things out to people. It's a place where you can go and find out, well, what, it, what is happening? And there's still, you know, our, our doctors are being, their medical licenses are being, you know, challenged because of, you know, refusal to follow the IDSA, I mean, the, yeah, the IDSA guidelines. And there are other issues that are coming, you know, coming up. And so it's kind of like, um, you know, my little media fiefdom where, you know, we put those, those things. Uh, we, we cover a lot of uh, the tick-borne disease working group has, has been going on for, um, you know, well, it's in the second incarnation now. Um, and there's a controversy associated with that. And we, we cover that um, as, you know, try to, you know, let, let people know. And the fact of the matter is more, you know, you keep track of how many hits you get on things. More of our audience is interested when, you know, a celebrity, you know, Justin Bieber has Lyme disease. Those are the ones that really get the hits. And the tick-borne disease working group, not as many hits as Justin Bieber. But the fact is, is it's still important and it's there. And um, so that's what I do. And, so Dorothy, uh, let's talk about, uh, and, I, and I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the projects at LymeDisease.org. And I appreciate you sharing with us the, the um, transition you made into this becoming a huge part of your life. Talk to us about your book, When Your Child Has Lyme Disease, and what inspired you to write that book? And how has that book been received? Because as you know, I'm a big fan of yours because of your book and, and, and the strength of your writing and the power of your writing. And I guess even more importantly, one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of yours is because in most of the interviews that we've done, we've, we have found families torn apart by Lyme disease. And quite frankly, many of the children who have suffered from Lyme disease had been abandoned by their parents because their parents did not believe that they were physically sick, but they were in fact malingering or emotionally ill and refusing to get help. Whereas you went the opposite direction. You're one of the few, unfortunately, where you went from knowing nothing about ticks, never seeing one, nothing about Lyme disease, to now being one of the leading Lyme disease advocates in the country. So talk to us about um, how you went from, from where you were to where you are and what role that played in you um, developing, I think, the, the premier guide on how families should come together to uh, defend themselves against Lyme disease. Well, yeah, that's really, that, that's really a loaded topic uh, because families, uh, families are torn apart by this. I think in, in, in our particular case, the fact that our daughter was so young when this is happening, I think that it is um, easier for the parent to believe you know, this, this isn't normal for, normal for my child. You know, it's, you know, she needs our help. 
and, and go from that place. I hear so many stories from people, particularly that are like maybe in their 20s, where maybe they've already flown the nest, gone to college, done whatever they're doing. And, and then the parents are like, well, why, why are you being like this? You know, just, just get up. And, and it also depends on, it, it also depends on how it manifests. Because if, for, for many people, the overwhelming, the overwhelming symptom is fatigue. In fact, in the MyLine Data program, the, 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 I believe that's the number one, you know, we ask people to, to, to list what, you, we ask everybody to say, what, is you, what are your three top symptoms? Dr. Let's, and, before, you, before you go into that, why don't you share with our listeners what the uh, program is and how they could participate, and then let's talk about some of the findings. So let's talk about the program first. The, um, okay. Please. Okay. Well, MyLine Data was um, was started uh, five years ago, 20, 2015, we launched it. And there had never been any program to collect information about people with long-term Lyme disease. There are similar programs that some of them run by the government, some of them run by other research organizations that for, you know, various kinds of cancer or heart disease or whatever, but there'd never been any information about Lyme disease. And so, you know, for starters, you want to know <laughs> how, how is it affecting people? And part of this is that the way the, the IDSA, Infectious Diseases Society of America, which, which puts out the Lyme guidelines that the CDC and others adhere to, they have always viewed Lyme disease as an acute illness, an acute early stage illness. You just, you know, give them two, three weeks of doxycycline and you're done. You know, you're good to go. And so all these people that come back and say later that they have this other problem, they're still a bit fatigued, they've got these other symptoms, they, you know, whatever. It's like, they just say, well, it's, you know, it's not Lyme disease. And so, you know, and so that has really gotten in the way. Why would you um, do a study of people if if the if you don't accept that the, that their disease even even exists, and so so we started it and this is uh, Lorraine Johnson is the principal investigator of it. She is uh, uh, the head of our organization and she's an attorney and she has lots of experience in lots of things and she has had Lyme disease herself. And uh, it's uh, anyway, and she she's she's been involved in a lot of things, health healthcare policy type things. That uh, I'm glad she's doing it. I'm saying I, I, I don't know I don't know all the details on that kind of thing, but you this this is done with um, scientific rigor in terms of the way questions are asked. It would actually take. If somebody signs up for this, you don't have to do it all in one sitting, but I think it, your, your initial one would maybe take, you know, 40 minutes or something of sitting down and you say, um, you know, how long you've been sick and how, you know, what kinds of symptoms that you've had, what kinds of treatments that you've had, you know, various things. And depending on how you answer one question, that maybe leads you to certain kinds of questions, because if you don't say you've had heart involvement, then you, they don't ask you any further questions about that. Anyway, uh, it was a couple of years ago, a few years ago, um, 
this team of mathematicians at UCLA got a grant from the National Science Foundation for $800,000 to work with MyLine Data to do um, various kinds of things. They're not working on trying to solve it. The, I mean, as, as a, as a treated, as a medical condition, they're looking at analyzing the data and what you can predict, something called predictive analytics. Like if somebody answers X, Y, Z, how likely are they to have this other outcome? They're looking for and, patterns. Yeah, they're looking, they're looking for patterns. And so it's, um, th th it's very interesting because people, you can, the only thing you need to, to be able to get into it is you have to have been um, diagnosed with Lyme disease in the United States. And so it can be a clinical diagnosis, but you have to have had a, a diagnosis. Because if somebody just wants to sit there and say, well, I've had problems for you know, 20 years, and I think maybe I have Lyme disease, that isn't what we're looking for here. We're looking for people who have been diagnosed with Lyme disease and to capture their experience. So Dorothy, and, let's pause here for one quick second, because during the course of our interaction with folks in the Lyme community, we are often asked, how can I help? And one of the things we want to encourage our listeners to do is to sign up at My Lyme Data and provide their information if they have either a clinical diagnosis or a diagnostic diagnosis from some form of testing, because it's really important that we bring as many people into this data set as possible so that we can, of course, encourage the best results. So, Dorothy, talk about how folks can participate in the My, My Lyme Data program. Well, um, the main thing is that it, it doesn't cost anything. And I also want to say we do not sell this information. Uh, there are other groups that collect this kind of information about other diseases that sometimes fund themselves uh, by selling that information to a big pharma or whatever. We don't do that. It's just we have very, very strict um, policies in place that that, that, that doesn't happen. That's and it's great. also very... It's, it's also uh, our privacy is a concern. It's all de-identified. And, uh, you know, so, so, so basically you go to uh, mylangdata.org is one way you can get there, or you can go to LymeDisease.org and we, we, have, <laughs> we have a button on, on our homepage. So either, either one of those will take you there and you fill out information. And if you can't do it all in one sitting, you can, you know, it'll hold your place and you can come back and finish it the next day. We have also started something um, that we just launched in May that is within the MyLine Data um, program, project. It's a, it's a separate um, um, questionnaire, if you will, that is if, you have, um, if you've had COVID-19 as well as, as mine. And so we're just collecting that information to see what happens. And we've had, um, we've had a thousand people who have answered that. They say there's there's you know between twelve and thirteen thousand in the program, but um, a thousand of them have answered that. So and it, it and it isn't necessarily that you had COVID. It could be that a member of your family had it. You know, is that kind of thing. But but it's just you can answer that if you want to. You don't have to answer that one. You know, if, if it doesn't apply to you, you don't have to you don't have to go down that one. But um, and so we uh, people can go to the website. Uh, there is something that we put out a year ago called the 2019 chart book from the MyLine Data Registry. And you can download a copy of it for free. And it basically summarizes 
things that had been found uh, by that point. And so, as I say, so we wouldn't include the COVID stuff because that, because that came later. But, uh, and, and one of the things that was very interesting to me is that the, the, number, the UCLA people working with the numbers really found that things, people fell into certain categories uh, like what they call, like let's say you took antibiotics and you say, yeah, it helped me a lot. You would be a high responder. And then somebody else, eh, helped me some, you know, you'd be you know, sort of a, an in-between responder. And then somebody else didn't help me at all. Uh, you know, low responder, non-responder. And those categories, they can look at, so the secret can be, okay, what is it about high responders? And, uh, you know, so, so what can we learn from high responders that maybe can help the low responders? <laughs> so it's that you, when it used to be, uh, you know, typical kind of, you know, experiment or study research, you might just say, oh, well, it, um, you know, there were, there were 20 people and uh, 10 people, you know, were helped by treatment and 10 people were not helped by treatment. So, so what's the average treatment response? Zero. <laughs> so it didn't help anybody. This way, let's say, let's look at the people that were helped and see if there's things that we can learn there. And uh, we're also doing a, a study uh, in terms of, of uh, sex and gender, in terms of, you know, um, you know does it, do women have different kinds of, of symptoms than men have? Do you have any er early results on that? Because our experience has been that women and men do, in fact, uh, react to Lyme differently. Do you have any early you know, results that to suggest that to be the case? Yeah, that, 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 there's, that there are different things. Uh, we're actually, I think they're preparing something on that that hasn't been released yet. So I, I'm not privy to the details, but that's been something that's been going, that's been going on. You know, in terms of social media, I would say almost everybody that follows us on Facebook is female. You know, they'll, they'll give you those, those uh, but, but there, you know, it's, there's, there's plenty of, uh, you know, there's plenty of men that have it, but maybe they just don't do Facebook in the same way or don't follow us or read our blogs. <laughs> but um, so there's just, there's lots of things like that that, that um, can be found. And, and, and one of the things that's, that's been very um, gratifying for us is that researchers are interested in this because this can help suggest research questions you know, in the past, somebody, you know, maybe they just came up with a research question on their own, you know, a, a, a research scientist, because they, well, why don't we look at such and such? But here, if, if you get statistics that, and, and what I started to say was that the, the, um, uh, that one of the questions they ask is, what would you say are your three worst symptoms? And so people say whatever they say on those and the one that gets mentioned absolutely the most is fatigue and that's where i don't even remember the point that i was making earlier but i was that's what got us going in this direction but that that fatigue is is um oh um you know but but again there's there's other people 
even like with the COVID thing, eventually, you know, initially they were saying, oh, everybody has a fever. Well, it turns out everybody doesn't have a fever. Right, right. You know, and so, so there's it is a diversity isn't... of symptomology in, in Lyme, just like, the way, just like there is in, in COVID, and that we're also seeing a diversity in immune response, at least with gender in, in COVID, and we may be seeing a similar distinction in, uh, in Lyme. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of this stuff that, you know, you, it's like you, as you were saying earlier, looking for patterns, you know, you get this information, they have, um, I'm, I'm told they have more than 3 million data points <laughs> in, in this program and in, in, for my Lyme data. And you just wouldn't be able to do any of that without the, the big data technology that they have now. So you couldn't do that kind of study in the past. And, um, and, and to do, you know, traditionally they say, oh, well, clinical trials, you know, are the best thing. Cl clinical trials are slow and they're expensive. And, you know, Brian Fallon did, did one, he's at Columbia, and he did one some years back. And, I, you know, I don't have a number right in front of me, but it was like he had to go through like 3,000 people or something to find 100 people that met their criteria. You know, you have to have a certain kind of criteria to be allowed in the study. And then the study maybe is valid for people that meet those criteria. But how about all those other people that weren't right. included? It's not helping them. And um, so it's, it's, uh, it, it's exciting. The, the, the MyLine Data Project is exciting. And it's something that people can do. And what you, well, what I started to say, so you sign up. It takes the first time, it takes more time, you know, that because you're going, you're putting your background and everything. And then, um, but then you get sent an email reminder, um, I don't know, every six months or something. And then they just ask if you would be willing to update things. So it has something changed in the last six months. Are you on a different treatment? Are you getting better? Are you getting worse? No different, you know, that kind of thing. And then, then as I say, we offered this thing about the COVID, if, if that's something that somebody wants to participate in. So, so, so once you, so my daughter signed up for it. See, I can't sign up for it. I didn't have Lyme disease. Well, thank God you didn't. Right. <laughs> but my, but my daughter is, is a, a member of it. She was one of the first people to sign up. <laughs> and, and so every, as I say, it's every six months or whatever that, you know, they get this thing and you can go in and you can, you know, you're getting better, you're getting worse or whatever. And uh, it's just, it's something that people can do. It's, it's something that just like when I was home and I wanted to do Googling the movie, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, it was, it's a contribution that, a meaningful contribution that people can do. So, so. Dorothy, let's, let's um, talk about the future uh, for Dorothy Leland. You, uh, you went from being a, essentially um, a mom at home who was willing to offer her Googling skills and her research skills. You then became an activist in the, um, in the community by joining organizations such as, I guess it was California Lyme or Cal Lyme, which then uh, brought you to uh, LymeDisease.org. And, uh, and then of course, uh, authorship of a, of a brilliant book. Uh, what's the future for, uh, for Dorothy? Where do you go from here? Uh, well, I don't know. Interesting question. I mean, I, I, um, I enjoy what I do with LymeDisease.org. I enjoy um, 
you know, more than I thought I was going to. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy the process of, we're, we're trying to bring in different voices in terms of, of uh, you know, guest blogs and, and that sort of thing. And so I um, invite people that are listening to this, if they want to write a guest blog, to um, send me an email. And uh, we can't necessarily accept everything that gets submitted, but we, but we are looking. We are looking. And um, so my email is uh, dleland, D-L-E-L-A-N-D, at LymeDisease.org. And I shouldn't have to tell this audience that it's L-Y-M-E. <laughs> Sometimes some people, I tell them that's my email address and they spell it the other way. All right. and, and, and we'll make sure they don't add an S on Lyme either. Right, right. <laughs> can't, can't, no can't Lyme's disease or no Lyme? Yeah, so, I can't. So now, Dorothy, I take you to the place where we take every single one of our podcast guests at the end of the podcast interview. And that is, if God forbid your son walked into your office and showed you that he was being bitten by a tick. What steps would you recommend that he take so that he would not have to suffer the terrible chronic Lyme disease journey that your daughter had to travel? Well, I would um, have him careful. Also, my son and other people related to me have gotten every kind of uh, insect shield uh, and uh, you know, piece of clothing and and uh, uh, tick removers and that sort of thing. You know, where it's like, oh no, here she's coming again, giving us stuff like that. Uh, but right, I so, would... so let's assume your son didn't wear all the shields that he would need right. in order to be able to avoid ticks, and right. the tick ultimately did bite him. What would you recommend that he do in that moment so that he wouldn't have to go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? I would recommend that he remove the tick carefully and send it to, um, there's a number of places that, that uh, you know, where it can be checked for uh, pathogens. And uh, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head is tickreport.com. But uh, there, there are others. That's, that's the one that, that sticks in my brain at the moment. Uh, where you can send it. Um, I think they're listed on our website too, but anyway. Um, and so I would have the tick tested. I would, um, I would have him uh, get in contact with, there, there are um, ILADS doctors and, and similar practitioners who will do what's called a recent tick bite appointment where they will try to get you in right away. A lot of times it's with the nurse, nurse practitioner or physician's assistant or something like that. And that they'll really go over what they feel uh, that you need to go over, uh, you know, in terms of your personal history and that kind of thing. Uh, I would, um, you know, again, I, I hesitate to tell other people what they should take. Uh, I would want them to discuss that with the doctor, but I would certainly bring up the issue of, uh, you know, immediate doxycycline, even though it isn't, uh, it isn't our favorite drug for a lot of reasons. Um, for lots of people, uh, it can be very effective if taken right away. And uh, I think one of the most important things is that people be aware of it and if you you go to your doctor your you know typical doctor certainly around here 
will say, no ticks around here. You don't have to worry about that. Oh, you have a tick. Well, no Lyme disease around here. Well, what if it's not Lyme disease? What if it's something else? Oh, no, we don't have any, we have any problem with that. No, not to worry. And um, I have been told that by different members in my group, uh, support group and stuff, where they call, you know, a lot of medical groups have the advice nurse and they call the advice nurse and the advice nurse tells them that, no, it's, it's impossible. Still, after all these years and everything, we'll say it's impossible to get Lyme disease in the state of California. And it's like, one, it's not true. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a real, um, you know, so, so you just have to recognize that you, you have to keep pushing. If it was me, myself, uh, I would, I would get, I, I would take doxycycline. And then, um, but again, I know there, there are people that, um, shouldn't do that for other reasons. And, and that there are, um, I was actually going to go and check you interviewed Dr. Rowles recently, and I'm, I'm not sure what his recommendations might be. I think that there are some, uh, alternative recommendations for that. But I said one of the, um, you know, one of the most important things I think is that people have to have a high level of suspicion. And, and uh, instead of this, oh, you'll, you know, you'll be fine, don't worry about it, isn't. But, but in my daughter's case, we were not aware of a, of a tick bite. So, so tick bites, you know, an awful lot of people, um, you know, another issue that's just come out you know, recently, uh, um, I was reading something about it recently, is Borrelia myomotoi. Actually, uh, you know, it's a different kind of Borrelia, and it's, uh, it's actually in the relapsing fever um, category, and uh, not, uh, not specifically like, like Burgdorferi. But it gives pretty much the same symptoms as Lyme disease, and it doesn't show up in a test. And so... Uh, you know, I, I you, think you would urge folks to continue to be mindful of their symptoms, regardless of what the testing shows. Absolutely, absolutely. In and including the, thing the is, testing, I mean, including the yeah. testing of the tick, because there is the possibility that a tick could be tested for pathogens, but the pathogens that are tested are not going to be the entirety of the pathogens that could be spit into someone, and therefore you may still get sick from Lyme disease, which by the way, let me ask you this before I let you go. Do you define Lyme disease as, um, as a disease that is uh, a consequence of being infected with one bacteria or do you define Lyme disease as a multi-germ infection? Oh, multi-germ, definitely. It's one of those things that it's easier to say Lyme disease than to say, you know, like Dr. Horowitz has, um, you know, MSIDS and, you know, that kind of thing, you know, these long names for it. But I think most of us, when we say Lyme disease, we mean the whole, you know, the whole ball of wax, including mold and, you know, some of these other things. And you can also get, you know, you can get sick with something that didn't come from the tick, but the tick lowered your immune you know, system. And so then you've got this other thing on top of it. And I, I think that that is one of the things that's, that's a big issue is that traditionally, at least my experience in traditional doctors, is as they tend to look at it as like, well, you got bitten by a tick 
And then if you, in fact, got the disease, then, you, you know, you, you got the disease. And that that's the only thing you're working with. When it's like, you can have a whole lot of stuff wrong with you. And getting back to my daughter's situation, you know, the chiropractor that did, that did all this, the upper cervical stuff with her, you know, I was asking him about that. And he was saying, well, you know, she played sports. She'd done a lot of things. The neck was really out of alignment. And then it made it, the body was less capable it, it, it sort of impaired, that in itself impaired the immune system. Everything wasn't flowing the way it was supposed to flow. And so the infection, he was not saying she didn't have Lyme disease. He wasn't saying that at all. And, and there's plenty of people that have it and don't have that manifestation of it. You know, and so, so what package of symptoms is involving one person, you know? And and, it's, and what package of challenges they may have to their immune response, such as in your daughter's right. case, the cervical challenges that the, only the chiropractor would have been able to resolve for her. Right. And so it's like, you know, and, and yeah, it's, it, it's very, I, I don't claim, I mean, you, you kindly referred to me as you know, sort of an expert or something. I mean, I don't consider myself an expert at all. Well, we do. I mean, yeah, you know, it's it's that I, I have some experience in dealing with it, but it's it's uh, there's so much that isn't known. There's so much that isn't known, and so the MyLive Data program is one of the things that we're doing. Is is we're trying to uncover some of these things. I was just going to mention one more thing about MyLive Data. We're actually going to separate this out into a separate thing that somebody would only have to do once. There, there is a way, if somebody has died, if somebody had Lyme disease and they died, not necessarily that they died from Lyme disease, they you know, could have been a car accident, <laughs> but, but somebody that is deceased, and if their family member wants to put information, you know, if they know information about the kind of treatment that they had and whatever, there is a, a mechanism for doing that as a well, program. Fantastic. That that would just be a one that would just be a one shot deal. Uh, another wrinkle is is that if you have uh, little kids, uh, you, a, a parent who is sick, the, the, the child is sick, a parent can do it on behalf of the child. Great. And then if the child, you know, then turns 18 and wants to continue doing it themselves, they can, they can do that. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dorothy Leland. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dorothy Leland and her family's Lyme disease journey, please purchase her book, When Your Child Has Lyme Disease, A Parent's Survival Guide, or read her blog titled Touched by Lyme that appears regularly on LymeDisease.org. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Take Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we are regularly asked, what can I do to help on the Lyme disease cause? And the first answer we give to people is to recommend that they go to LymeDisease.org and participate in the My Lyme Data process. My Lyme Data is a patient-powered research project that was conceived by patients, run by patients, and addresses the issues patients care about. This project lets Lyme disease patients learn from each other and provides data that is being used to drive research and to improve the lives of Lyme disease patients. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or on Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes or our website. Thank you for listening.